This episode of Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, was recorded the morning of January 6th, 2021. Just a few hours after we finished, the violent insurrection took place at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. While this show does not directly reference that event as it had not yet occurred, we do hope it sheds some light on how other parts of our society reflect the conditions that led to it, and that our show gives you some understanding and healing at this time. Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoot. And I'm Coach John Shoot. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. And hello to all of our listeners, and Happy New Year, Happy 2021 to everyone listening today. I'm Matt Bush, the news director for Blue Ridge Public Radio. I also produce Going Deep along with the Shoops, and today we're having our first episode of 2021. It's our first discussion episode in quite a long while as well. To go over this for some of our new listeners, our discussion episodes just involve talking about some current events, things going on in the sports world, and we haven't done one of these for quite a long time. Actually, the last one we did was for the prior year's Super Bowl, Super Bowl 54, which means we have not done a discussion episode since the pandemic began. And that leaves us any number of things to discuss today. So thank you all for joining us. John and Marsha Mountshoop, thank you as always for joining us and taking the time to do this. And I think I just want to start the episode today asking both of you individually, what are you taking out of 2021 or out of 2020 into 2021? Uh, Not just from the sports world, but also personally. Well, okay, John, you're pointing to me. You want me to go first. So (laughs) Um, there's a lot that I'm taking out of 2020, um, and mostly because it's all still with us in 2021. (laughs) Um, And a lot of it has to do with so many of the issues that John and I have worked on and advocated about for for years and years and years. Um, Issues of of um, racial justice and transforming um, the culture of America around the commodification of bodies, especially black and brown bodies. So I feel like 2020 only just made all that that much more, you know, clear for anybody who was having trouble understanding those dynamics. Um, So I feel like what we have um, and the best way of framing what 2020 gave us is momentum, momentum around some important issues, momentum around real deep social um, and existential change for the way we, we are together in this country. So I'm taking a, I'm, I'm actually taking a sense of hope and momentum into 2021. Well, before the or in the middle of the pandemic and before the college football season, in fact, it was in the spring of 2020 that the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, said, if schools don't reopen, then they're not going to be playing sports. He said it's really that simple. 
Well, by August of 2020, North Carolina Chapel Hill, NC State, ECU had sent all their students back home, yet they were still playing football on their campuses. So it really wasn't as simple as Emmert (laughs) made it out to be. And what really just became so pronounced to me and hopefully to all of our listeners is the hypocrisy in the NCAA uh, surrounding big time football and big time basketball. And uh, it is just, it's absolutely amazing to me. The college sports went forth this fall and uh, well, football did and had a season. And I think that's one of the things that's just really been under my skin. And I have many friends uh, that are coaching that, frankly, <laughs> were really nervous about it. Many people think, oh, hey, the coaches really wanted to do this. I've got a lot of coaching friends that were like, this is crazy. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? And so the hypocrisy of college sports is just clearer than it's ever been before. And then we're going to spend a lot of this episode talking about college sports and how the pandemic has exposed many of the things, like you said, that you you all have been fighting for for decades uh, and all that. But I think first to really begin this, to kick this off using a bad pun, but how much is this actually going to change the NCAA and how college sports are done? How much is the pandemic? How much is everything from 2020, the election, the racial justice protests and the pandemic? How much is all of that really actually going to change how the NCAA does its business and major colleges too? Because I think as many as you will probably get into, it's the major colleges that really run this, not necessarily the NCAA. I mean, there are a couple ways to look at it. I mean, one way to look at it is that if they're going to still play football in a global pandemic that's as contagious as COVID is. And basically, you know, kind of just say, well, we're okay with, with killing people. I mean, really, even if you didn't have players die, even if you didn't have coaches die on your team, you are contributing to the spread of a disease that's killing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. So you're by, by playing football, by traveling, by doing all the things that are involved in a sports season, they contributed to the deaths of many, 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 many people. Um, So one could look at that and say, well, I guess nothing's really going to change the NCAA if this didn't do it. You know, if this didn't um, chasten the kind of money machine and say, well, you know, we do have our limits. We actually do care about the well-being of humanity on some level. Uh, if you if you thought that, well, no, they don't. But on another, another way to look at it is that there are a lot of people who were already pushing, pushing, pushing around change and transformation in these issues. And this, this was a a kind of seismic push through to um, bringing more people into the conversation. I think what you saw with the George Floyd protests, um, all of that is so tangled up with the conversation around revenue athletes and collegiate sports. Um, And there are just more people now who are well-versed in 
in the narrative um, around racial equity, around um, the dismantling of white supremacy culture. There are more people that you can have that conversation with now. I do think that um, the NCAA isn't going to change itself, but I do think there are more people kind of pushing um, around that conversation that could continue to get change moving. There was already movement, and I think it'll it's not going to stop. Well, I, I agree with you, Marcia, that, I mean, just based on logic, Travel and collegiate sports has spread <laughs> the virus in ways that we'll never know. But one of the things that was amazing to me is the NCAA and college athletics has staked their entire reputation on student athletes being or athletes being like regular students on the campus. And what absolutely amazed me is how quickly and how easily the powers that be abandoned this notion that athletes are just like other students. They did it in many ways. One, uh, the athletes had access to tests that the rest of the community did not have. Uh, two, it's not because they were a greater risk to a virus, although maybe they were, but that's not the reason they had the tests. It's because they had a greater financial value to the school. They needed to keep those people healthy so we could play football games. And before the football season started uh, on going deep, we talked to uh, Victoria Jackson, who's an advocate for student athletes. And she wrote an article that was in the Boston Globe saying that you know, we need to take a year off from collegiate sports, and maybe this is an opportunity to fix some things that are clearly broken. And uh, what I see is a real wasted opportunity during this pandemic, during this crisis. Uh, it's a wasted opportunity to fix some things that we probably should have just called time out on the season and really tried to fix some things in college sports that needed fixing. I, th I think it's a wasted opportunity with regards to that. What would have been the impact of taking the entire season off? Obviously the football season's done with now, but we're in the midst of the college basketball season. You've had some high profile coaches, coach K Mike Krzyzewski, Duke, one of them being criticizing that they're still playing right now. Um, Obviously, there was no tournament last year. That's a money issue, uh, the NCAA losing billions on that. But what is the impact? I mean, the powers that be just could not imagine not having a season. And there were obviously a lot of fans that just uh, similarly could not imagine not having a season. What would the impact actually have been had they just canceled everything? 
Well, we may be in a better place right now, certainly in our entire country with regards to this uh, pandemic. Like I said, taking football teams and when you have football teams, we're talking about hundreds of people that are traveling throughout the fall did contribute to the spread of the virus. But I think more importantly, This was an effort to recoup some of, not all, but some of the money that these mega uh, of of sports franchises in college, the Notre Dames, the Alabamas, the SEC and Big Ten schools, uh, try to recoup some of that money. They wanted to make these four TV events. Rest assured, the stadiums weren't full. I mean, in some cases, there were 12, maybe 20,000 people, which was crazy in itself as well. But it was just an effort to recoup at least a portion of the finances. For my money, they also spent a great deal of money trying to get these teams to the field. I mean, all the testing, all the protocols that they went through were also costly as well. And so I don't think that we know the exact cost-benefit analysis yet, but as Marcia said, there's someone used the term, I think, necropolitics. People are going to die. And so what is the the politics of this? We know people are going to get sick. We know people are going to die. We know that this is going to affect people for the rest of their life. What, What price are we willing to pay for that? And I'm not sure. Uh, when this is all done and they look at the books through this thing that, well, I'm I'm pretty sure the price is not going to have been worth it because the stadiums weren't full anyhow. So I have a theory about this because for, I think it's, I think you have to look at it more as a social cultural phenomenon and, um, we have habits as a culture, and when we do those habits enough, they become habitus. Habitus is like a susceptibility. It's almost like a susceptibility to a disease, okay? Um, I write about this in my first book, Let the Bones Dance. It's about embodiment. And so the body habituates, and, and it habituates, and over and over again with practice, it becomes almost unconscious. It becomes mindless, and then it becomes a susceptibility to certain behaviors, to certain um, reactions. I believe in, um, in a white capitalist patriarchy that the habitus that has taken hold in our bodies is that we cannot do without something that the white men want. We can't, because if we do, it gets violent.
So there's a learned trauma response that we have as a culture to keep the white men in power happy. White women have learned it and have benefited from it in different ways, but also black and brown people and indigenous people have learned. You want to keep the white powerful men happy, even if it's not conscious. There's a susceptibility that we have to the suggestion that if you're not doing what I ask you to do, then you're going to die. So you've got this this pandemic on one on the one hand that I definitely saw a shift in the way we were addressing it as a society in America when the statistics started rolling out that it's black and brown people that are dying disproportionately. All of a sudden, we need to open the economy back up again. Because you know what? It's not the white men that are going to die. You know, I mean, white men are dying of this disease. But once the statistics came out that it was black and brown people without health care and things like that that were bearing the brunt of this, there was just a whole lot more like openness to let's get the economy back going. John just said, you know, okay, there, it's a disease that affects, you know, you can get sick, you can die, it can affect you for the rest of your life. We could say the same, same thing about CTE that we know impacts um, black and brown men more disproportionately because they're the ones putting their bodies on the line for 20, sometimes more years uh, at these impact sports. We don't do anything about it because it's not the people in power that are bearing the brunt of it. And so just like you might have a pre-existing condition that makes you more susceptible to COVID, in a white capitalist patriarchy, patriarchy we all have a susceptibility to being commodities, being productive, and also keeping the, the powerful comfortable. And, and again, I can't emphasize enough, this isn't conscious. We didn't all sit there and go, let's keep the white guys in power happy, you know. But, but it is a learned habitus, a susceptibility to being self-destructive, really, is what it is. We don't do what's best for us and for our neighbors and for our communities, especially impacted communities, because we've learned that that doesn't get you very far in this society. I think you're right on point with that. And I can remember being in college sports thinking, why are we making these dumb decisions just to please these wealthy boosters many times these boosters that are providing so much money whether it's at the university of north carolina or purdue where we were at vanderbilt they all think that they're in their white old men they all think that they're like the team owner and it's interesting can you give us sorry john can you give us an example of one of those i've heard many of them from you in our conversations share one of those with if you can with a our story listeners. not names <laughs> <laughs> i know you got both you got yes, both. a story not names yeah well <laughs> i i think a vivid example of this dynamic 
was in a recent issue of Sports Illustrated. A guy named Mike Rose, Michael Rosenberg wrote an article called It Took a Pandemic to See the Distorted State of College Sports. Now, he's pointing to something that has been apparent to Marsh and I for as long as we've been in college sports. And it's here's a quote that I think is important. He says, not everybody can win, but everybody can be obsessed and everybody can market obsession. That is the prominent business model in college sports. Prove to your customers that you are as irrationally committed as they are. So what does that look like? It looks like uh, at the University of Texas on December 12th, the AD, Chris Del Conte, uh, uh, gave their head football coach, Tom Herman, a vote of confidence on December 12th because just a few days later was the signing date in the middle of December that they were counting on recruits coming. Just days after that signing date, he fires the head coach, gives him a $15 million parachute, has to pay $9 million to the other coaches, and uh, they go out and hire Steve Sarkeesian, who was an offensive coordinator at Alabama, had been previously fired from his other head coaching job for personal problems related to alcohol, and they're going to give him probably a $50 million contract. And so when you talk about the obsession, I can remember being at the University of North Carolina and our head coach, I actually liked the guy, Butch Davis was our head football coach. And he used to always say to me, we need to have some type of construction going on in our stadium because this is how we stimulate uh, uh, boosters getting involved in donating money to our program. And so we had a, a relatively brand new athletic football office. And he decided he wanted to add a fifth floor for like $150,000 or more than that, probably a couple million dollars it, it cost us to do. And, and Butch is a good guy. He's from, uh, I mean, his dad was a high school coach. He's from, you know, the country in uh, uh, Arkansas. But I'll never forget sitting in a meeting with Butch and he's complaining to the boosters that the marble outside the elevator leading into his office on the floor wasn't shipped in from Italy. And I said to Butch, we're a football team. This is a, a football office. What are we talking about? And he kept saying, the boosters need to see that we've got the finest of everything. We built a fifth floor that's like the Taj Mahal. He built another end zone stadium, uh, 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 academic center uh, uh, that was donated by Charlie Loudermilk, the guy that owns Aaron's Rents. Hundreds of millions of dollars. And all that this was, was an effort to keep these wealthy country club boosters involved. It was actually pretty sickening to to be around and see guys that grew up kind of with a blue collar kind of complaining that our marble isn't from Italy complaining we had a carpet at the University of North Carolina in the front lobby that was 
It was a big, huge round carpet that was shipped in from Argentina or something <laughs> like that. And, and to get it cleaned every single week cost us like this monumental amount of money. And I'm like, why are we doing this? And Butch Davis just continually said, because the boosters want to see this. When you walked into the offices at the University of North Carolina, the football offices, you won't feel like you're walking into a football building. You'll feel like you're walking into the poshest of posh law offices or a country club. That's what you'll feel like. And in fact, uh, I've always argued and have talked to Butch about this and other coaches as well. This country club feel that we're kind of creating for our team really isn't helping with the toughness element on the field either. You know, it, it, it's really not. Well, that that is the the habitus, right, of a of a white capitalist patriarchy is the at least the appearance of extravagance and appearance and opulence and the, those are those are um those are the, that's iconography of masculinity like i make a lot of money i'm smart i people listen to me i have power so that that's all a great example and and you see again this football's not an outlier it's just it's an emblem of the way we do things in america i mean college campuses always have um construction going on mm -hmm. because they always want to have somebody else that can put their name on a building and and really get excited about um giving a lot of money to um institutions of higher learning and again if the pandemic showed us anything is that if you doubted there was some other kind of community value or norm that was driving the way we build um, our society other than the economy other than the commodification of people um, and our productivity if you doubted that before covid you shouldn't doubt it anymore. I mean, uh, we put people's lives on the line every day to serve the needs of of the wealthy. That's what we've been doing during this pandemic. So many things I want to go off of that. But first, we're going to continue on what you just talked about there, Marcia. And we're going to talk about one particular college player right now. And that's Keontae Johnson, a basketball player at the University of Florida. Uh, in a game in December, uh, Florida playing Florida State, he collapsed during the game on the floor, uh, almost died, was taken to the hospital, was in a medically induced coma for a few days, has slowly recovered and is now out of the hospital and is able to sort of function uh, back as he was, but certainly isn't playing uh, right now and may not play ever again. Again, it was eventually discovered by his doctors that he was suffering from a heart inflammation that is known to be caused by COVID. Um, there's a very bright example, and I think a very vivid example to people, particularly fans who are following college basketball. This was a very big story when this happened of how COVID is putting players' lives on the line. Mm -hmm. And they're not being paid. And they're not being paid. And... Um, our good friend Bob Orr tweeted um, after that happened, just so everybody remembers, you know, if he's not able to play anymore, he's got no health insurance. He's got no long-term care committed to him or his family from the university um, at all. And again, 
all that was going on. Same thing would happen with uh, players who had career-ending knee injuries or head injuries, or they had too many concussions, so they they couldn't play anymore, or they chose not to play anymore. They're going to live with that for the rest of their lives, but but college sports aren't set up to really support the impact um, of playing revenue athletics on the body. They're they're not those those players. Some there's a story just a few years ago of a player from UNC who ended up homeless and living on the streets and eventually died on the streets um, because of his. It's not set up for for a community that values the well-being of the people who are most impacted by the way we generate wealth. One of the interesting things to me in the Keontae story is that how quickly we're back to normal, really. Keontae came back for his junior year. It it seems that he's a legitimate NBA prospect. Maybe not a lottery pick, but he's a legitimate candidate to play in the NBA. He thought coming back to Florida for one more year could help his stock understandable. He had this episode. uh, I think people did treat it with a degree of concern and everything, but we're now back. We we know (laughs) that COVID affects your heart, that there could be long-term conditions, but he's back playing. And one of the things that I think people need to realize is Players kind of get sucked into this process as well. He's pursuing his dream. I'm not sitting here beating up Keontae like, why are you going back and playing? I don't beat up football players who say, hey, I want to go and I know I might. I know the risks of CTE. I know the risks of injury. Players can make those decisions. The problem that you have in college is just what Marcia said and what our friend Bob Orr said is there's no safety net for him. If it doesn't work out, there's no safety net. And I got news for you too. And people say, well, the safety net, he's getting a good education. Well, don't get me started on that because we've been down that road again. He's getting the education that the university wants him to get. Getting a degree and getting an education are not the exact same things. And so One of the dynamics in all of this that really is, I don't know if twisted is the word, but it sometimes is even confusing to me. And we saw it with COVID and football players is the players want to play. Players are not all the players, but, you know, many players in often cases or players often are willing to risk their health willing to risk their life so yeah 
and because that's kind of ground into them, I guess, instilled into them or, or go ahead, Marsh. Well, that's, I was just going to say that's back to the habitus, to the, suscepti- ha- yeah. the susceptibility. Exactly. And I mean, uh, there's, there are layers and layers and layers of existence that, that create this habitus. And when you think about the narrative that young men grow up with, especially black young men that, that this is your ticket. This is your way. This is the way you create respectability um, in the larger culture and in your community. This is the way you get to go to college. This is the way you can provide for your family. This is the way you can be famous. This is the way you can make money. Um, so, yes, when you see somebody, okay, when you see somebody risking their life for something, there should be some questions that we ask. What is at stake for that person that they would put their bodies on the line yeah. like that? So what is it that is driving them? And I'm, I hope our listeners, if you haven't listened to the story of Maurice Claret, go back and listen to that show. He is such an amazing kind of storyteller of what it was that he grew up with and what the story was that he, the script that he needed to follow in his life. And he was willing to put his life on the line, even when he knew the cost. He's like, I had to do it. And so don't underestimate. And so again, you put, when we hear from BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous people of color, as as we've navigated and, and been in dialogue as a society around COVID, you, you heard the language from many people um, that said, hey, we've been living in a global pandemic our whole lives for generations. This is just another one. Just This is just another thing to throw on top of it. But we've had a pandemic after pandemic. Um, uh, in our communities. So it's, it's the same with this. Why would a player approach it any different? You know, how does the danger of COVID make them perk up and say, Oh crap, I'm done any more than CTE. You're listening to going deep here on blue Ridge public radio. I'm Matt Bush joined by the hosts of the show, John and Marsha Mount Shupin talking a lot about how the pandemic is affecting college sports. And so far, it sounds like you both are saying it really hasn't affected it much. And <laughs> it's just showed it's, you know, it's just more what, vivid, more vivid. What, what, well, here's something to think about. So when you think of college sports, you think, well, there's some schools that kind of do it the right way. Well, let, let's look at Stanford. So Stanford University, when Santa Clara County in California issued a regional stay-at-home order, you know what happened to their women's basketball team? They went to Las Vegas for 17 days to practice, and the men's basketball team came to North Carolina for the Maui Invitational, which was played here in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, to practice because they couldn't do it where they were. So that's an example of Stanford that, well, we all like to think does it the right way. Another example of a school that, you know, you might think does it the right way. Think about Vanderbilt University. 
in money just being thrown around. In 2013 at Vanderbilt University, we told the story of Patton Robinette on this show. Uh, he was a quarterback at Vanderbilt, and he was an incredible player that led a team that was directed by then head coach James Franklin. In 2013, James Franklin was making $1.84 million at Vanderbilt in the most successful season in their school's history, and then he left to go to Penn State. Think about this for a second. And again, these are schools that are people say, well, they do it the right way. In 2020, the head football coach at Vanderbilt University was Derek Mason. He made $3.5 million and went zero and nine. And he made more money than James before getting fired. And so the money being thrown around is phenomenal. But the thing that amazes me is this pandemic, whether it's Stanford, whether it's Vanderbilt, whether it's Notre Dame, whether it's Alabama, it hasn't affected people. Mark Emmert has said, well, if we don't have school, we obviously won't have games. Wrong. We, we did. We didn't have school and we did have games. Nobody cares. This This is like a locomotive that we had an opportunity to maybe address things if we just press pause during this pandemic. But frankly, maybe things have gotten worse. I want to ask this. I mean, you have Mike Krzyzewski, Coach K. Duke saying, questioning whether basketball should be played. There's no bigger name in college basketball, at least as a coach, than probably him. And that didn't affect anything. So if he can't get anything affected, I mean, what will what would it have taken? to stop this. If he's saying, well, I don't think we should play, then no one batted an well, eye. Now, Duke's women's team did well, end their season. That's that's that Maybe that's what you were getting to, John, but no one batted an eye at Duke about the men's team stopping. Well, let me say this. I hear what Mike Krzyzewski said. Mike Krzyzewski has wondered, why are we doing this? Well, I got news for you. Mike Krzyzewski can stop it. He can. He can say our team's not playing, saying that we shouldn't be doing it. When your actions and your words don't match, I don't know. They're just kind of words going out there. Now, the women's team, they said we're not going to play. What's the difference between Duke's men's team and uh, Duke's women's team? Money. Uh, About $100 million (laughs) a year. And so Mike Krzyzewski is, you're right probably the most powerful person in collegiate basketball. He's saying he doesn't think we should be playing. Then don't play. If he stops playing, everything will change. He's just saying it. And until your words and your actions match up, you're just another person chattering away as far as I'm concerned. the same as the um the university presidents that are saying 
you know, racism um, and discrimination have no place in our on our college campus while making the decision to cut men's track because of the pandemic. We need to save some money. You know, this is happening on several um this happened an hour and a half in, south west of us it's happening at right now yeah. and it's, it's you're cutting a sport other than basketball and football has the most highest percentage of black and brown men on any other athletic team that's not not revenue producing so why'd you pick that one i'm an i'm a track athlete it's probably one of the least expensive sports there is i mean you're paying a lot more for soccer you're paying a lot more for lacrosse those things and those things are kind of counting against your title nine stuff more because they have bigger rosters it it makes no sense so if you want to say discrimination and racism have no place on this campus which the president of clemson said and the AD at Clemson said, and then at the same time say we're cutting men's track and cross country. Well, then it's like John said, you're just you're just talking. You're just uh, creating an appearance. And to coin a term, you know, of our current president, that's just fake news. You know, that's not real. It, that's just you trying to look like you're one of the good guys when really what you're doing is absolutely redistributing wealth from black bodies to white bodies when you're saying the revenue sports fund the olympic sports and you take the one olympic sport that has the most black people on it and you get rid of it then you're redistributing the wealth to benefit white bodies with statistics have shown those parents those families generally come from high wealth backgrounds and they could support their own college education their own sporting endeavors they don't need the underwriting of um, the university to do that so moving to something that is a bit topical right now and that is this monday at least as we're recording this this monday is scheduled for the college football national championship ohio state is going to play alabama one of the things we do here on Going Deep that you two are so so adept at and so good at doing is showing how much sports mirror society, uh, particularly in the United States. And we see growing inequality. Um, college football, major college football, Division 1A, or as it's now called, I probably should say FBS, the football subdivision, um, the growing inequality within that. Now, there are 130 schools that are play uh, the top level of college football now in the United States. 64 of them are in what are called P5, Power 5 conferences. And those are the Atlantic Coast Conference, the Big 10, which has 14 schools, the Big 12, which has 10 schools, uh, the Pac-12, and the SEC. When we come down to this, there's been a college football playoff now for eight years, or seven years, excuse me, 28 slots then, with the four four teams each year make it, 28 slots. 23 of those, or excuse me, 22 of those have been taken up by just six schools, and in the last four years, 14 of the 16 spots have been taken up by just six schools out of 130. Those six schools are Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and I said the five, yes, sorry. Not great at math in my head. Um, there is a growing inequality there because you have 124 schools, really, at this point, don't much have a chance to win the national championship. Um, 
one, how did we get to this, that this inequality is so great? You could say it mirrors how the same thing has happened in the United States as our society in general. Two, will it be reversed? Because obviously right now, it does not seem like there is any incentive to reverse this inequality. It's going to be tough to reverse it. You know, I've made this analogy, you know, in terms of like uh, retail stores, everything kind of gets consolidated. And really, if you're going to go shopping, you're going to go to Target or Walmart. And if you're a college football player now, you're going to go to, in your elite, you're going to go to Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State. There's very few uh, places that are able to, and, and college sports is all about collecting talent that are able to do what those schools are doing. How did we get there? Well, I don't know that there's any one reason uh, uh, in how we got there, uh, but I will say this, those teams, the Alabama, the Ohio State, the Clemson, they're willing to sacrifice everything else. These big-time football schools, Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State, they really only care about two sports. They care about football and men's basketball. And I'm convinced that the athletic directors at those schools, if you were, if, if, if Dan Radakovich at Clemson was to really be honest with himself, he doesn't give a crap about any other sport except for football and basketball. And how do we get there? They've just sold out on every other uh, every other sport and taken every amount of resource and focused it into football. As Marsha was saying, you know, Clemson is the prime example. There's a man named Russell Dinkins who uh, uh, was a, a runner from Princeton, and he's now leading a charge uh, to bring back men's track programs at different schools. He, he's already succeeded at Brown, at William and Mary, even at the University of Minnesota. And he's filed a complaint with the Department of Education that cutting men's track at Clemson is a violation of the Civil Rights Act. And if you read much of what he did, he's probably right. Dan Radakovich, the AD at Clemson, he's going to be evaluated on how good the football team does and how good the basketball team does, because those are the teams that make all the money. And if black student athletes can make money for the school, that's going to be endorsed, enhanced, that's going to be invested in. If black student athletes can't make money for the school, i.e. in men's track, We'll eliminate the program. So we talk a lot about systems and that we need to change systems. We need to, um, you know, fix systems. But I, I want to point out that these systems are, are working exactly the way they were built to work. And so think about the NCAA. Okay. That system. All right. It's it, it it's it's kind of tagline that was that it was there to protect athletes who were college students, to protect the academic enterprise, so that so that athletics wouldn't sully you know what we're doing academically. Okay, 
that's not really what it was set up to do. <laughs> it was set up to create a power structure that would allow for, for schools to cash in on what was increasingly becoming a funnel for resources. It was a way that boosters gave to schools because they love their teams. Um, it was a way that schools could control the behavior of their athletes. Um, you know, they're, it's like, you know, controlling your investment, taking care of your investment. The system was built to create um, the illusion of, of, of this kind of protective impulse that colleges have about their their reason for being but really what it's what it's done is it has it's created the perfect recipe for the concentration of power which is what we're talking about okay who's going to call these schools on it the other schools who are benefiting from them having all the money the whole thing is set up it's all hush money it's just it, it's 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 built to keep people happy enough that when the Alabamas and the Clemsons and the, you know, the Ohio States, when they get in trouble, they don't really get in trouble. No, but we're going to make a big deal of these other schools on the, on a mid tier. When, when they do something, we're going to lower the boom on them to show you that the NCAA cares about fairness and we play by the rules and, and we care about student athletes. And this is about the, um, you know, that these are students first. Those rules don't apply to the Ohio States, the Clemsons, the, Ohio, the, the Alabamas. We've seen that over and over again. They can have the same violation. It's like our justice system in the United States. If you're white and you can pay for a really good lawyer, you can shoot somebody and you're probably going to get off. If you're black and poor and you're, there's even no evidence that you shot somebody, but you happen to be in the wrong place at the right, wrong time, and you don't have a good lawyer, you're using a public defender, you could go up to death row and not have done it. So it's the same thing. And the system was set up so that that kind of power dynamic could take hold. And a lot of people benefit from it, not just the big guys. But the whole conference system is set up so that people, they hush because they're getting something out of it and they're comfortable enough. So the status quo is always preferred when you're, when you're comfortable enough.
so we'll wrap up the show looking at it this way, and we're going to go back a bit to uh, the Michael Rosenberg article that you were talking about, uh, John, and people will be able to find that in the show description. They'll find a link to it. And talk about obsession and how that is marketed and how that's honestly a commodity, and it is a commodity that really drives sports fandom, but it doesn't just drive sports fandom. It really drives fandom of anything. It could be live music. It could be cooking. It could be all those things. Obviously, on this show, we're looking at, at it as sports, but Given just the year that we've been through, given the three major stories of the year, the three stories of our lifetime, really, of the last year, which were the racial justice protests, the pandemic, and the election, um, obsession drives so much of what we do. But now that we're into a new year, and we're looking at it at least with a different lens because it is a new year, it's an arbitrary calendar thing, but we are looking at it through a different lens, I guess, going into the new year. How much should we still care at this point after the year we've been through and how much we have seen, as you said earlier, Marsha, how much of all the issues that we see on a day-to-day basis were made so clear to us in the last year? How much should we still care about all these things that we previously would obsess about? When I was coaching as a young coach in the NFL and then in college, I used to have this saying that I'd keep in my office and it was part of the West Point maxim, but the the saying said, care more than other people think is wise. And I always thought that was important to, hey, I'm going to outwork the competition. I'm going to make this more important to me than it is to you. What I found when I got to college, and at North Carolina is where it started, I found this insatiable, (laughs) irrational obsession of boosters and fans in college that I didn't really experience in the pros. And here's why I experienced it in college. It was because I had to interact with boosters in raising money and stuff like that. When I was the offense coordinator of the Chicago Bears, there were irrational people, but I didn't have to interact with them at all. I did, you know? though. Yeah, Marcia <laughs> did in the stands. I didn't have to. <laughs> but I can remember being at North Carolina and thinking, my goodness, this guy's crazy. He cares more about what happens on Saturday than I do. I was trying to invest in relationships and guys that I cared about. And all this guy could talk about is, and I say this guy, it could be one of a hundred guys at these booster events that we had to go to. Hey, how can we get the 40 points or what's this guy? Can we get this recruit? What do we have to do? They'd know more about the recruits than I would sometimes. And I was the gosh darn offensive coordinator. And that's when it started to feel like to me, this is, this is twisted. And I'm telling you, the boosters, the boosters in college are really kind of steering the ship in some ways. I mean, a guy like Tom Herman that gets fired like that, that's because there's some mega boosters that want to compete with Texas A&M. Gus Malzahn got fired at Auburn University. He's owed $21.45 million dollars. It wasn't the AD that made the decision to fire uh, Gus Malzahn. It's the boosters that are paying all the money to Auburn that say, 
we want to be around the water cooler and say Auburn's better than Alabama. And at North Carolina, they want it to be better than NC State, better than Clemson. And at Purdue, it was the same thing with uh, uh, Michigan or Indiana. And the different vibe that you get in college is, as a coach, I had to interact with these guys. And frankly, it, it was sickening. It was sickening to listen to a guy talk about, I don't know, th- th- these players as if they're commodities, and these guys talk to me as if they're the team owners. At least in the NFL, you knew the guy really was the team owner or the woman, uh, Chicago, Virginia McCaskey. You knew that the person really did own the team. In college, man, you never knew who you were talking to. It was crazy. And many of those boosters cared about it more than I did. They really did. And it became twisted. A quick answer to a big question is that, yes, we should show, we should still care about this because it matters. Because these are carriers of... These are carriers of all of our norms, all of the ways that we, that people's lives are, are put together. Um, and there are people who are, who are adversely impacted by the ways these things work. On the other hand, it, it should still be something we care about because this is how human beings make meaning. And fanaticism is just an expression of idolatry, which is one of, of you know, a theologian's um, go-to terms and idolatry is just is when we make something that's finite or of limited existence we make it into something of infinite importance we we create these little gods and humans have been doing that since since the beginning of time if we stop talking about this if we stop putting our energy into kind of exploring and analyzing and wondering and investigating then we let the idolatry machine just go on overdrive because that's what humans do. We create idols. So we need to have this show. We need to have other um, venues to really deconstruct and investigate and wonder and look at some of these um, power dynamics. Because if we don't, then the idol's just allowed to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. and I like to think that one of the things we can do together is decenter the idol, kind of put it alongside some other things, put it alongside some other dynamics, some other issues. Look at, look at it through the lens of race. Look at it through the lens of gender. Look at it through the lens of, of um, capitalism or power. And then let it speak to us so that we can do better. So yes, I think it should still matter, but yes, I still think these are big problems, pressing issues, as we say, about going deep. You've been listening to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. 
Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep at bpr.org. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.